Amen. All right. Have a seat. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor, so I'll be here the rest of the morning. Uh, I hear that it's Easter. Is this true? I love it when Easter falls on a Sunday. I've been telling that joke for weeks. I was like, I just, one more time, you know. Uh, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you picked up a house Bible, the page number is on the screen for you. And um, this is a pretty significant chapter in the New Testament. It's written by Paul to a church that he helped start in the city of Corinth. And Corinth at the time was a pretty remarkable city. It was fairly young, very, uh, very urban, very artistic uh, but it also had all, all sorts of different religions and faiths and, and whatnot. And the fact that Paul even got a church going there is fairly amazing. Uh, an ancient phrase to describe someone who was from uh, the city of Corinth is the phrase Corinthiazomai, which means to live like a Corinthian. So just your geography, your neighborhood preceded, like, it, that's your reputation. So, oh, you're from, you know, whatever. And then so people would just assume that you lived a certain kind of lifestyle. It was often used to uh, describe people who were morally off the rails. And so, again, I just always love how Paul was able to go to these kinds of cities and places and put churches, and they, and they worked. Uh, and they did pretty well. And in 1 Corinthians 15, or at least this part of his letter, there are several letters that he wrote to this church. Uh, we have two of them in our Bible, and uh, there are others that we don't have. Uh, and in this letter, right toward the end, all of chapter 15, which is 58 verses, that's a pretty long chapter, it is completely and thoroughly and through and through, it's all about the resurrection. That's all it's about. Everything that he says, every verse, every phrase, every uh, teaching, every riff throughout all 58 verses deals specifically with the resurrection. Uh, now, you may be thinking, how much is there to say? Like, he rose. Get on with it. Um, but there's just—actually, I brought this book today. Uh, one of the scholars that's influenced me in the last 15 years or so is uh, N.T. Wright, who used to be the Bishop of Durham and now is teaching at St. Andrews. Uh, this is one of his books on my shelf— and this is just about the resurrection of Jesus, right? I heard an interview with him recently about uh, when he wrote this, he sent a copy to his father, had his father read it, and he says, father called him back, and he said, what do you think of the book? He said, it got really interesting around page 600. <laughs> so, uh, so when you read 58, 58 verses about the resurrection, and you're kind of moving through some teachings about the resurrection, it feels like a lot, but... It, a lot has been said since, and it's a big discussion, um, you know, in terms of our faith, and particularly for those who are not of faith. I mean, it's a big question uh, for a lot of people. Uh, a couple things about this chapter, by the way. This is the oldest reference in the New Testament to the resurrection. The letters that Paul wrote predated the gospel writings. And so what we're reading today is the first uh, piece of Scripture that even talks about the resurrection. So I find that pretty extraordinary. The others are eyewitness accounts. This is more of a teaching, like this is what it means, this is what it's about, this is the framework of, of everything that it means for us today and how we should respond and so on. The question is, why does Paul even put this in his letter? And a lot of the letters about the resurrection, but this whole chapter devoted to it, why does he do that? A couple of reasons. One, again, this church is a very young church, and so it's developing theologically. It's developing in its understanding of not just the scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament at the time, but just of this whole Jesus movement. It's new to them. 
And so there's a little bit of like development going on theologically, but more importantly, what's happening, and somehow Paul got word of this, is that the subject of the resurrection among the people in the church of Corinth was becoming a struggle. Like, pe- like many people weren't sure whether that part was true. And I'll explain why in terms of the ancient world in a moment. Um, but the resurrection for many was still a struggle. Now, this is what I know about those of you in this room uh, and in any room at any church at this hour. is There are basically two groups on this. One, many of you, perhaps many of you, and I'm included in this, is that the resurrection of Jesus for you is everything. Like, it's the whole thing for you. It's the thing that gives you hope. It's the thing that gives you faith. It's the thing that gives you strength to walk through some of the darkest moments of your life. It's the thing that somehow helps you endure failures. It's the thing that helps you endure loss, death, the funerals, the divorce, the relationship issues. I mean, resurrection for you is the baseline of your faith. It's everything to you. When we get the prayer cards in the boxes, you know, we pick them out on uh, Sunday afternoon and we look through them on Monday, and there could be piles of them week after week, 99% of them are basically about resurrection. Now, you may not be thinking that when you write on the card that you need a job or that you need your relationship with your spouse to change or that you need help with some sort of addiction or you need some resolve with some health issues or so on and so forth. You may not be thinking that you're talking about resurrection when you write all these things down on your card, but basically that's what you're doing. You're saying in so many different ways, I need to rise out of my current situation. I need some life breathed into my life right now. And the resurrection in the New Testament is pretty much the whole story. Let me just paint it for you this way. If you take out the birth of Jesus stories, which only exist in two gospel writings, if you take out the birth of Jesus stories, uh, we lose about four chapters of the Bible, right? If you take out the stories about the resurrection and everything surrounding what the resurrection means, you essentially don't have a New Testament. You're just left with fragments of an unknown story otherwise. Just transitional phrases without any dots to connect. The whole thing is about resurrection. And so for many of you, and again, I'm included in this, the resurrection for you is, it's the whole story. It might be the reason you became a Christian. It might be the reason that you gave everything about who you are back to God. Now, the others of you in the room, and I have dear friends in this situation, the resurrection for you is a, is a deep struggle. Like, that's where it stops. Like, I feel like most of the world, and again, there are the exceptions. There are the Bill Mars, the Richard Dawkins, the Christopher Hitchens, the like, that they, they sound like they hate Jesus. But most of the world, I feel most of the world approaches Jesus in this way. Um, they like him. He's a solid moral teacher. He's a great example of humility and love. He's someone who has much to offer the world. Like if we just did half the stuff, Jesus, you know, if you read his teachings and, uh, you know, his attention that he gave to the poor, his concern for justice, uh, his concern for the equality of women, his dealings with the outcasts, the marginalized, his teachings on love your neighbors yourself. I mean, is that not just the most baseline, transcendent, that doesn't matter what faith you come from, love your neighbors yourself, that just doesn't even seem scandalous. 
And that for him was the second greatest commandment. Love God was one, oh, and love your neighbor is two, and everything else sort of goes underneath that. Like, that's not even that offensive, is it? And all these things are just completely attractive, for the most part, to the world around us. And again, most would say, I would say that most of the world, or most people would say that the world might be a better place if we just lived according to um, the teachings of Jesus. I have a neighbor Sometimes we'll be out, you know, I'm walking my tiny pug, um, and she's walking her giant dog, and she, every now and then, we'll get into this religious conversation, because I'm a pastor, and there's like, once you pass the 38-second mark, she doesn't know what else to talk about, so it's like, so how's Jesus doing? And, um, and so, and I'm like, I think he's, I think he's doing well, um, but she starts talking, you know, and she starts talking about how, like, she just loves to go to all these different places, um, you know, Buddhist temples, Hindu places, uh, Islamic temples, and she likes this church over here and this synagogue over here. She just likes to kind of, like, salad bar the whole faith thing, and just like, I like this part here and this part about Jesus here, and I like this about Buddhism here, and so on and so forth. Like, just that sort of person where, like, uh, taking all of the good that exists in all the faiths and just saying, like, that's good for me. Like, that keeps it from being challenging, one, but, it, but it, I'm taking what I like. And so I feel like most of the world just kind of comes up to Jesus and gets right up to him and says, I like the guy. There's really nothing about him that I don't like. But that's probably where it ends for many of you. It's the otherness of Jesus that becomes the problem. The miracles. The healing of the sick the blind, the deaf, helping people walk again, the walking on the water, which would have been extraordinary to see, and today, the resurrection. And so, it feels like a long introduction, but this is kind of the audience that Paul is writing into. Look, I want to talk about the resurrection. And what he knows, and I don't know how he knows this, but what he knows is that the people in Corinth in the church are struggling with this, and it's slipping and they're losing some hope. And when you kind of lose hope in the resurrection, and he says this later in the chapter, although we won't really get around to it because it's in verses 12 through 19, but he basically agrees with them, like, if the resurrection didn't happen, then pretty much this is all very silly. It's just sort of strange. So I say all of that to say you're not alone. I love the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection and the gospel writings. Have you ever read those? Do this today. Um, read them all back to back and write down everything that just feels chaotic about it, erratic, inconsistent, like, wait, this person said this, but this person said this, and what's really happening? I don't know if you followed the story last week of the, the FA-18 flying into the apartment building in Virginia Beach. Did anybody, was anybody awake this week and saw that? Okay, extraordinary story. I happened to see it, like, as it was unfolding, and, um, so I'm on, I'm on CNN. I know that just like polarized the room. But so I'm watching. <laughs> hey, you know, whatever. But um, I went to the blue channel too. So it was sort of like <laughs> positive, negative, positive. Um, but anyway, so I'm watching CNN. And what, what they're doing is they're trying to gather all the information. And so there are live cameras on the street. And what you see is just chaos. 
and you see smoke coming out of the buildings. And so you have all the local news outlets trying to get their cameras set up, trying to find people to interview, and you've got CNN, and they're trying to get the information from iReporters, which I just love. They got the iReporter. So this guy's on the phone going, it sounded like a train. This girl over here is saying, I saw it come in this way. And, and they're trying to gather all the information, and some of it doesn't sound like it matches up. Like, well, you said the plane was coming nose down. You said it's coming nose up. Like, what's really happening? So they're trying to get all the facts together, And it's real difficult for people to describe such a thing like that because A, it's just happened, and B, it's crazy. It's unforeseen. It's a surprise. But what the truth is in the story is that there's a plane in the building. And we're going to figure this thing out. And so a lot of the eyewitness stories in the Gospels read like that. Like how in the world? I mean, for Jesus' closest friends— the disciples. This was a theological head trip, mind-bending idea that someone would come back from the dead. It was an unforeseen reality, simply because of all the hopes that the disciples had for the Messiah. None of them, and please hear that, none of them included resurrection. You want to know why? This is really profound, because dead people stay dead. Like, you don't have to be a modern scientist to figure that out. Dead people stay dead. And so you have to imagine, and the women, by the way, were the first to bring the news to the men. Also some trivia for you, like every single gospel account of the resurrection includes the women being the first bringers of the news of the resurrection. If you're going to base your movement on something in the ancient world, it's not going to be on the testimony of women. Their words weren't even admissible in court. And so you had to imagine the writers of the gospel saying, but that's what happened. So the birth of the church, by the way, and we're still around, began by the words of people, women. I mean, I was hoping to get an amen out of the women, but that's okay. (laughs) I mean, it's quite an apologetic. It's kind of like, if you're going to start a religion, you don't do it like that. You make up something better. But it's like the gospel writers are like, well, that's just what happened. And they came, like it says, the women came to the men and they said, look, I know this is going to sound crazy, but like he's not in the tomb. And hold on to your toga like we talked to him. And then it says... Like, the reaction of the women when the tomb was empty was not joy, but fear. And when they told the story to the men, it says that Peter and John ran to the tomb. Not because they were excited, but because they were confused. See, the first reaction about the resurrection was complete confusion, not confirmation, not like, awesome. It was confusion. Because in the ancient world, life after death, often hoped for, That's fine, but resurrection of the body, impossible, implausible. Doesn't happen. So Paul wrote this letter, or this section of the letter, to help this young church, many of you in the same situation, same frame of mind, trying to really deal with this struggle, this problem of the resurrection, what it was, what it means, what our response should be, and so on. Now, 
Look at what he says here in verses three through eight. He says, for what I received, so he's a receiver of this news. He wasn't one of the first people to see Jesus. Um, He says, from what I receive, I pass on to you as a first importance. Like, this is the main thing. And then what happens next here, this reads like an ancient creed. Actually, if you're familiar with the church creeds, this, they may have spun off of this. But he simply says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. So that's Paul's way of saying, you can go and find these people and ask them. And then he says, some have fallen asleep, which is biblical language for they're dead. And then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Meaning, I'm an outsider on this, but man, I got to be a part of this. And so, let's work backwards through this. The first thing that he does, and I know this doesn't help us because we're 2,000 years down the road, but what he does for these people in this church is say, listen, there are people still alive that you can go and speak to and talk to, and they will tell you the story. They'll tell you the story. And we don't have time to get into all the ins and outs of like how that worked and how that sort of you know, unfolded, but that's what he's saying to them. Like, I'm telling you, there are people that were there, and I'm one of them. There are also outside, um, some outside uh, pieces of literature that were written around this time. Uh, One of these people, probably the most famous Jew of the first century, Josephus, who was a historian, wrote a couple of big works, and in his Antiquity for the Jews, of the Jews, he wrote this. It's a long quote, so just hang in there. He says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, so he gives him this title of what he had gone by. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, connecting himself back to the Jewish people, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. He evidently doesn't know the story of Peter. For he appeared to them alive again the third day. Joseph is not a Christian, by the way. Concerning, uh, as the divine prophets have foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful uh, works concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, I love being called a tribe, so named from him are not extinct at this day. So here's a guy writing late in the first century, telling the story of the resurrection. So this thing is circulating, plus the birth of the church is working. There are people, uh, it's growing. There is some persecution, but it's growing. And the resurrection is at the center of their gatherings. But this is the phrase I want you to see most of all. He says it twice. He says, according to the what? The scriptures. Now, when you're reading the New Testament and you see the word scriptures, what does that refer to? The Old Testament. Because the New Testament, like, it's, it's, it's getting down, like they're putting it on the press. But the, the Scriptures, it's the Old Testament. So what Paul does here is extraordinary. He says, according to the Scriptures, all these things happened. 
right? So whatever happened through Jesus and on the cross and in the resurrection or through the resurrection was not this last-minute, once-off, sort of last-ditch effort by God to do something about the world, but it was a completion of some kind of promise and fulfillment to the people of Israel and to the world, a plan rooted in the Scriptures, which again meant the Old Testament. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what he's quoting, and so there are plenty to choose from, but most people land here. Isaiah 53 uh, verses 4 uh, through 6. It's probably on the screen, is it not? Yep, so let me get mine here. Uh, verses 4 through 6. Surely, is that right? Or 3? Yeah, sure, or 4. <laughs> Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you were here a number of weeks ago, and we talked about the topic of forgiveness, and when Peter is really struggling with, why does Jesus have to die? Why does this whole thing have to take place? What does death or suffering or sacrifice have to do with forgiveness? If you'll remember, and this is just a short one or two riff recap, forgiveness means to absorb the loss, to take on the debt of the other person. Someone always loses in forgiveness. I've said this from the stage many times before, and I'll say it again today. Forgiveness is not like a win-win. It's a win-lose every time. Because someone says to the other, look, I'll take the loss. I'll take the weight of the wrongdoing, right? You can go free, but I'll carry the weight. Forgiveness means to absorb that stuff. And so what this Isaiah passage is talking about is quite profound in that all of the weight of all of the brokenness of the world gets placed on the shoulders of Christ, And this is rooted in God's love for the world, of course, as we talked about just a couple weeks ago in the John 3.16 text, where John said about God that he so loved the world, and the word there is cosmos, which means all of creation. He's redeeming every bit of it. Not just you, but everything. And so, Paul says, according to the scriptures, he died for us, for our sins, And then he says, was buried and then raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Uh, So in Psalm 16, again, maybe referring to this, in Psalm 16, we have this nice, and this is also quoted, by the way, at the sermon, uh, the first sermon in the book of Acts uh, at Pentecost. And in Psalm 16, it says, from verses 8 through 11, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So this statement of confidence in him. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. So there's this little hint, this little murmur of maybe there's more to life. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. There's just such a tone of resurrection and eternity, a murmur of a future hope. 
the Benedictine sister, Joan Chatister. I mean, if you're going to be a sister, your last name should rhyme with that. (laughs) Said, at Christmas, we find the manger full of life. But at Easter, we find the tomb empty of death. And it's a brilliant way of saying the whole story is about life. The whole thing is about new creation. I think about the last words of Jesus on the cross when it says that he said the words, it is finished. That it wasn't just about his dying, like that his life on earth was done. But when he says it is finished, it's, it's that the whole plan, the whole story, the whole gospel was now complete. From the moment sin and brokenness entered God's creation, there had been a commitment by God to bring restoration and renewal to the world, to recreate everything that had been broken. The message is very clear in the Scriptures, at least from God's perspective, and that is that all is not lost. And in a strange way, when Jesus says the words, it is finished, it was really an announcement about a whole new beginning, a new creation. And so Paul reminds this young church that's struggling with this that what's behind all the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that God is doing a new thing. Not only has there been forgiveness, but there's this newness, this new creation. But then finally, look at verse 58, and I know that's skipping a lot, but you can read on your own time. Nothing like condensing this, you know, like whatever. Paul says in verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in what? Vain. Like that it matters. Now, a couple things. When you're reading any letter from Paul, this is the first thing you should do, which is most of the New Testament. Open the letter and look for the word, therefore. Every time. That's where you start. The reason you start there is because that's where he's going. So like, for example, you read Romans. The first 11 chapters basically takes you to verse 1 of chapter 12, which says the word, therefore. And then here we go. Here comes the application. So for 57 verses, Paul's like, resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. It's awesome. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Therefore. And then he says these words, stand firm. In what? Well, in your faith for sure. Like, don't give up. Hang in there. Keep investigating. Keep praying. Keep talking. Keep searching. Keep studying. Keep learning. Like, stand firm in your faith. If there's persecution, which there would be, stand firm in that. But stand firm also in your life, your vocation, and your purpose. Like, don't disconnect. Don't become depressed where life just starts to move past you and you're just sitting sitting there. Stand firm. And then it says, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And I love this part because what Paul's, I mean, this is it. I mean, we're talking about resurrection here. Great, that's fine. But the whole thing, the whole momentum of the chapter moves to this right here. Live your life in such a way that it is a resurrection kind of life. Announce the resurrection with your life and your work. That's the work of the Lord. 
I mean, what's the point of throwing this at the end of 57 great verses about resurrection if it doesn't have to do with something here and now? Like it's, hey, great, have faith in the resurrection, but the question might be that he's asking, are you living your life like the resurrection is real? Are you doing that? If you're not doing that, it probably means that you've given up on the quote-unquote work of the Lord. You've given up on his, what he can do in the world. Uh, This is a long quote. It'll be on the screen. It's from N.T. Wright, but just follow along. It says, Because the early Christians believed, and this is heavy stuff, that resurrection had begun with Jesus and would be completed in the great final resurrection on the last day, they believed that God had called them to work with him and the power of the Spirit to implement the achievement of Jesus and thereby to anticipate the final resurrection in personal and political life, in mission and holiness. It was not merely that God had inaugurated the quote-unquote end. If Jesus the Messiah was the end in person, God's future arrived in the present, then those who belonged to Jesus and followed him and were empowered by his spirit were charged with transforming the present, right? As far as they were able in light of that future, living as resurrection people. Notice this quote from 4th century Roman uh, Emperor Julian. Next slide. Atheism. If you were here a few weeks ago, I talked about how the Romans viewed Christians as atheists because they didn't have a temple and they didn't acknowledge the national god, so therefore you're, you're an atheist. So I just, I just love that. Um, so atheism, bracket Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service related to strangers, rendered to strangers, and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal, he says, that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain hope for the help that we should render them. Dude. What does Steve Jobs say? The juice goes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith rather than, and I've helped you out here, living life Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it. Living as resurrection people. Closing riffs. The resurrection is not just something to believe in but it is something to live. To be and live as people of the resurrection, to stand firm and movable in the face of brokenness, to hold out hope for justice in the world, to breathe life into dead places. Whether that's in your neighborhood, your place of work, or in the lives of the people that you know. It's to stand firm in the hope and the promise that God can create and renew all things, and that he is renewing all things. Like Easter is happening, right? And Paul's words in this chapter are simple and challenging for us, and they're simply this. The tomb is empty. Death has been defeated. All is not lost. History is actually going somewhere. New creation is happening. Now go and live that way. Nowhere in the New Testament, hoping to get an amen there, but that's okay. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere, underline that as if you're writing that down, nowhere 
in the New Testament are we encouraged to give up in this life committing some kind of spiritual suicide by sitting around and waiting to be rescued from a broken world, but instead we are called to engage with this world and to bring life and the message of the resurrection to every corner and every world that we inhabit. In other words, bluegrass music does not fit in Scripture. We are not called to sit and be rescued from. Like, this world is not my home. Well, in fact, it is. And while you are here, you are an announcer of resurrection. And when heaven crashes into earth in the very end, a new heaven and a new earth, then we will understand what God has called us to do. Amen? Welcome to the Easter season. It's traditional uh, in most churches that you do your once-off Easter, and then you move into like a, an awesome, um, um, you know, financial series or something. <laughs> but in fact, <laughs> but in fact, the tradition in the church calendar is that the Easter season is going to last another six Sundays. So we're going to celebrate this for a while. And uh, if you want to read ahead, we're going to move through the, uh, the, the New Testament letter of 1 John for the next six weeks. And it is all about, in light of the resurrection, how do you live your life? And I hope that I've made that transition fairly simple for us today. But today is just the beginning of kind of a nice run of teachings, of experiences together, of worship, and so on and so forth. So welcome to the Easter season. Welcome to resurrection. Let's talk about this thing. Let's get excited about this thing. And let's see what God does through you and in this city and in this world. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into communion together as we do each week. And I know that because we do this every week, it can be kind of become that thing uh, that we just do before we leave. However, today is Easter, all right? And so it does hold some special significance in that, again, Jesus inaugurated this thing, this communion, this Eucharist, this Mass that we do each week together um, as, a, as a reminder of His work and God's work through Him in the world on the cross through the resurrection and the hope of his return. And so I'll pray, and you can move to one of the four tables uh, around the room. You're welcome to take the juice and the bread back to your seats with you. That's fine. We can clean that up later, or you're welcome to take it at the table um, as well. So I'll pray. And then once you're finished, remain in here because we're going to sing uh, one more song together. Father, thank you so much for this day, and uh, thank you for, uh, man, the baptisms that just kept happening. And we're uh, just humbled um, that in a room like this, just full of, I mean, we're just a mess. And you continue to work and you continue to, to produce good things. God, I pray for all the churches in the city right now that are probably closing in prayer as well many of which are teaching the same text, some different texts. But there are a lot of people right now hearing about you and about this resurrection, and many people don't believe it, but they hope that it's true. And so God, in some way, I pray that you increase our faith, that you increase our hope in that. And in the midst of that, that you continue to shape us into resurrection people that wherever we go, we breathe life and hope into the worlds that we inhabit. 
We love you and we thank you for this set-apart time each week where we take this bread and this juice as it reminds us of your son and his work. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.